The format of the class, of course, is a familiar and straightforward one. For the most part, the process is the same in any classroom. I should say something about grades. You turn in the paper or you take the test, and then you wait for a single letter grade to summarize the results. A's mean excellent work for a first class. But here's a question for you. When it comes to higher education in America, when did the institutions get their grade? I'm David Abair, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, we travel to Washington, D.C. to talk about one of the larger investments that you're likely going to make during your lifetime, access to a college degree. Turns out there's a wide disparity in the U.S. when it comes to school performance in post-secondary education, and that statement holds true whether you're talking about public or private universities, online institutions, or for-profit colleges. So, with that as the backdrop, here's Laura Arnold with more of our deep dive into the state of higher education. Hello, I'm happy to be here in Washington, D.C., discussing higher education with two experts in the field, Kevin Carey from New America and Lene Erickson from Third Way. Welcome to Deep Dive. Hey, Thank great you. Great to be here. Now, we're having this conversation in D.C. in the wake of a very active legislative discussion about reauthorization for the Higher Education Opportunity Act, um, lots of topics in higher ed, lots of topics in education in general. So this is a very timely discussion, and I'm thrilled to be able to engage with you on this. I would love for this conversation to focus on issues of access affordability and social mobility, which are issues that are of particular interest to us at Arnold Ventures. I know uh, in your respective organizations, they're of interest as well. Now, I think both of you would agree that um, in that regard, higher ed is absolutely a dysfunctional market right now. So, Lene, let's kick off and um, have you tell us why you would agree with that statement. I think there's a couple of ways that the higher education, quote unquote, marketplace doesn't really work like a real market. Um, The first is that we don't have any access to the information we need to make good choices. So if my washer breaks tonight, I'm going to go and look up what are the good washers. And in higher education, we make it extremely difficult for students or parents or families or even taxpayers to know what the outcomes are of the schools that they're choosing and funding. And I just think you wouldn't run any other kind of a business that way with this black box of you put the money in and you have no idea what you're getting when it comes out. And the other piece is that there's this kind of third-party funder in the mix. The federal government is really putting a lot of money into higher education, as it should, because we know that by 2020, two-thirds of all the jobs in the U.S. are going to require education beyond high school. It's something we need to invest in. Um, But we aren't asking for any return on investment for what we're putting in in terms of the taxpayer investment. So that means we're spending $130 billion a year on higher education and not even asking what the outcomes are, not even asking are students graduating, can they get a good job, can they repay their loans. Um, And that means that the institutions aren't really held accountable for those things. They get kind of a blank check to prioritize whatever they want, not necessarily student success. Now, Lene, the $130 billion that you mentioned, as I understand it, is the amount that the U.S. government spends in federal grants and loans every year on students. Kevin, tell us from a policy perspective, what isn't working? 
Well, when we think about access to higher education, the first thing we tend to talk about is money, which is why we have this uh, $100 billion loan program and another $30 billion in grants. But to me, access is both you have to be able to afford a college, but also to afford a good college. And that, I think, is where a lot of the system is breaking down. As Lene said, uh, people don't know which colleges are good. The whole structure that we have that determines quality in higher education is mostly based on prestige. So we judge colleges by how smart students were before they got there, not what they learned while they were in college. You know, that even that way of, of structuring the market only works for about the top 10% of students who go into selective schools. The rest of them go to fairly non-selective schools where they don't even know that. They can't even say, oh, well, you know, all the kids with the high SAT scores went over there, whatever that means. So they're really flying blind and it makes them vulnerable to exploitation. Um, it makes them vulnerable to just plain bad choices where they end up making a, uh, the wrong decision about the right fit for them. And those are bad choices that have a lot of consequences. You can't take them back. What solutions are you each of you advocating, uh, many of you, many times jointly, you're advocating these solutions. What do you think is important and necessary to achieve true reform? I'd say a couple of things. There's a big opportunity to uh, increase transparency. There's legislation called the College Transparency Act that's bipartisan, moving through Congress right now, uh, that will provide a lot more information to students uh, and parents making choices. So that's one. Two, I do think we need to strengthen uh, consumer protection in higher education. Not a one-size-fits-all strategy. We, the diversity of the American higher education system is really important. We want colleges to make different choices about their approaches and their student bodies and their pedagogy and all the rest of it. But there do need to be baseline protect protections in place so people have a, a decent chance of graduating, getting, getting a good job and paying their loans back. Um, those structures are too weak right now and actually are being weakened as we speak by the Trump administration. And third, we do need to look at the way we finance higher education. I think there are chances to put some more money on the table for the most low-income students who really need it the most. Right now, there's nothing in federal law that focuses on actually getting students who can access college to then complete it. We've been really focused on getting folks in the door. And then we just hope that they get to the end and get a degree. That is not working. And right now, there are uh, schools that have a less than 10% graduation rate that are being funded by the federal government. And we're encouraging students to take out loans to go to those institutions where we know they have a 9 in 10 chance of failing. It's just not setting people up for success. So making sure that there are some floors below which people just can't continue to get federal money, um, I think, is really important. In that respect, a lot of the um, a lot of the conversations that folks are having on the Hill and, and really nationwide relate to for-profit colleges. And we've all heard these um, catastrophic and horrific stories about predatory practices by for-profit colleges. I'm wondering if you all could comment on how you make a distinction and why you think there should be a distinction, if you think that's the case, between non-profit colleges and for-profit institutions and how you think about a regulatory structure that creates that floor that you mentioned, Lene, but doesn't have any exemptions. 
I think that one of the things that we've seen, obviously, is a lot of the bad actors in this space are concentrated in the for-profits. And there's a reason for that. There's different incentives there. Their incentives are to grow, to make money, to make money for their shareholders. It's not necessarily that it's an evil cabal. There's The system is set up, so they're trying to make a profit by design. Um, so they're making the different choices. to that, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. the corollary to that is that they're also arguably in a well-functioning system providing a product. Yeah. Yes, that's Providing right. a competing product that if a market function properly may be a favorable thing. That's absolutely right. And so I think the um, limitations on things like how much of the money they get can be federal money versus money from employers or money from students is one of those kind of market-based tests that, you know, says if it's only federal money you're getting, then maybe there really isn't a marketplace for the thing you're putting out there because no one else wants to spend money on it. Um, so the rules like 90-10 rule, which means that you can't get more than 90% of your revenue from the federal government if you're a for-profit are really targeted to solve that specific problem. But the problem is much bigger than just for-profits. And um, some of the worst offenders are in that sector, but there's some bad offenders in the nonprofit space too. Online colleges that are spending almost no money on their students that are you know, targeting certain folks that are setting their prices just above what those people can take out in loans and grants. And um, the students are just really not getting a return on their investment. So we really think we need to regulate the whole field, but that doesn't mean that you you can't distinguish between different kinds of guardrails that different kinds of uh, schools might need. What you end up with, though, if you put some of these bottom lines on, is you end up hitting some schools that we all think are trying to do a good job, but really are under-resourced. And so I think any kind of new accountability system needs to distinguish between a community college that's trying really hard and just doesn't have enough money versus a uh, university that is spending all of its money on something other than its students and has plenty of it. And why do you think there should be a distinction between, I mean, if a school's trying and can't get better and is producing bad outcomes and is producing students who are unable to to get jobs or unable to, to satisfy their student debt or, or whatever the case, why do you think that's a different universe? In higher ed, unlike in kind of the K through 12 system, we don't actually spend a lot of money investing in the places that are doing the hardest work. We spend a lot of money uh, in kind of a voucher system where students get to pick where they go. The Pell Grant, which is our main way that we fund by the federal government, low-income students having access to college, Harvard gets the same amount of money from that Pell Grant from that student as a historically black college that may be serving a lot more underserved students. So there's no uh, way, there's no good way that's sufficient to really take take account of the fact that it's harder to educate a 90% low-income population than it is to educate Harvard's population who went to really excellent K-12 schools, is well-prepared for college, have a lot of supports at home, and, and on and on. And I think we need to recognize that and invest. That doesn't mean giving people a free pass, because I think at some point you have to say, you're not, you're not improving, even if we've given you more time, more resources, um, then it's actually not helping those students to go there. Kevin, what other uh, policy recommendations would you say are important in terms of accountability? 
Well, I think we need to take a, a close look at the accreditation system, which is really the main um, accountability system we have for American higher education. States regulate their public institutions to different degrees. But in terms of an overarching kind of level of consumer protection, what we have is this accreditation system, which um, is uh, a, they are nonprofit organizations that are run and financed by fees paid by colleges themselves. So it's kind of a self-regulation system. Colleges essentially examine one another. It's a system that works okay for well-run, well-resourced institutions. Peer review is a good way to improve if you're already at a good, a good place. It's a system that basically fails all the time if you don't have uh, good intentions and for institutions that are in a, some kind of state of catastrophic collapse. Um, so we've seen over the last three or four years a couple of huge for-profit college chains just closed down. Uh, Corinthian Colleges, ITT Tech. We saw out in, in Seattle, the Art Institutes and the Argosy chain of colleges announced on a Wednesday they were closing on a Friday uh, mid-semester. I mean, leaving in some cases doctoral students who were had been working years for their PhDs, like weeks away from finishing. All of those institutions were accredited on the day they stopped working. So wave the magic wand and tell me what the accountability landscape would look like in a high-functioning environment where we continue to spend north of $120 billion a, a year on federal student loans and, and grants, but where we have a high-functioning system? I would say two things. Um, one, we need a stronger floor for quality. As Lene said, um, you can graduate almost no one. You can have um, none of your students getting good jobs. You can have terrible loan repayment rates and still stay in the system. We just need to raise that standard um, to a, a reasonable level from where it is now. And then second, we need to reform the accreditation system so the accreditors themselves actually have the tools and the authority to do their job. And I'll jump in on that because I think um, something we've learned from other places in policy, particularly the K-12 system, is that if you put all of your emphasis on one metric, it's going to get gamed. And so we really need to be thinking about multiple ways to measure whether a institution or a program is delivering for its students. So for example, if all we do is put a rule about completion rates in, they'll just start giving people more degrees, right? Because that is how you stay within the loan system. But if we don't, if we don't pair that with something about external outcomes like employment rates, you know, salary, whether someone is making more than the average high school graduate is a really good salary test, I think, because you're then asking, is this actually a return on investment? <laughs> and are they making someone better off or worse off? Um, and loan repayment rates, if you don't look at all those three things together in some way, We've seen in the past, you know, the, the system will get gamed. And the current structure, there is a bottom line that we do have. And it's called the cohort default rate. And it looks at how many of your students are actually defaulting on their loans. Well, the Government Ac Accountability Office just came out with a study that said, basically, schools are helping people be in forbearance um, and not technically default until just outside the three-year measurement window, and then all of a sudden everyone's defaulting because it doesn't count towards them anymore. Well, that's not unlike any <laughs> any industry, right? right? Where the finding the loophole means finding the profits very often, and that's, right. and that's where people gravitate. Can you both summarize for me what are the ideological, or maybe they're not ideological, maybe they're simply political, or maybe they're just sort of economic, but what are the key areas of difference and contention when it comes to accountability that you're seeing now in uh, in the context of the HEA reauthorization or just in the 
higher red reform space in general? I mean, I think certainly um, the folks on the Republican side of things and on the right are uh, skeptical of a strong federal role. I mean, I think that's kind of a foundation, foundational part of their uh, approach to governance and, and, you know, one that I think should be respected. But that means that new federal regulations don't sit very well. If the, this idea that we're going to consolidate authority in the U.S. Department of Education that's currently very decentralized. I would say in terms of the Democratic side, there's a strong desire to invest more money um, in the higher education system and provide more access, um, but actually also sometimes are reluctant to put accountability along with that. And so I, I look at both sides and say that there's a weakness in terms of being able to make some of these hard decisions about what it's going to take to really give students the consumer protection they need. You mentioned Linnae data, and uh, that, of course, is one of the one of the pillars of the reforms that many of us would like to see. Talk a bit about what the data landscape is now and what you'd like to see and why. Yeah, we have really limited access to data right now because Congress actually passed a ban on getting the data that we need. So there's what is called a student unit record ban, which means basically you can't have the data by student. And so um, you have some data, but you're not able to then dissect it and move it around in the way that you want because there were a couple of members of Congress who were very powerful on this issue who um, didn't want that data to be out there. And frankly, some of the institutions didn't want that data to be out there because they know that they wouldn't look particularly great. So, And now the ideology behind that, or much of the rationale behind that, at least from an ideological perspective, is this idea of Big Brother shouldn't have my specific data, right? My personalized data, just out of a fear that sinister things would happen and that once the government collects this data, who knows where it goes and who knows in whose hands that uh, that data lies. And in fact, it, libertarian and arguably liberal organizations like the ACLU, as I understand it, were actually quite opposed to lifting that ban on um, on student unit records. Yeah. And there's been a lot of progress on this issue. Actually, Kevin's organization has done amazing work on this, so I can let him talk a little bit about it. But it is there have been a lot of folks who have come around on this and a lot of people who are working on the privacy protections to make sure that we can get the data we need without um, you know having anyone's privacy be violated. But if, if students can't, for example, access data by program, so say I want to look at two different nursing programs and they're both down the road from my house. And one of them has really, really good job placement and really, really good salary for graduates. And the other one doesn't. I'm not going to be able to know that right now. And the only thing that was allowing me to be able to have some of that information was actually regulations the Obama administration put into place called gainful employment, which um, targeted these more career-based programs. But the DeVos folks are rolling those back. So that data we did have could go away. And so program level data is a big piece, having outcomes by different groups of students. So um, until recently, we didn't even know how many Pell students graduated at any different institution until about two years ago. That's crazy. We spent $30 billion a year on Pell. I should be able to find out how many of those students are actually graduating. So fast forward five, 10 years, or however long it would take to implement a lot of these systems. But assuming you get everything that you think needs to be incorporated into this legislation? What kinds of things could a student or a prospective student be able to ask? Sure. I mean, the under the current system we have, the very outdated system, we know, for example, uh, at a given college, how many students graduate with engineering degrees 
We know um, how many women graduate. We know what the overall graduation rate is and for women. Um, we know how many students have Pell Grants. What we don't know is how many women with Pell Grants who were engineers graduate. We don't. We only know for a certain subset of programs whether they get jobs in their field and can pay their loans back and actually earn a living, but we can't tie all those things together. And so the information is just too abstract to really inform consumer choices and make the market more functional. So do you, what makes you believe that making the data available will make people make better choices? I'll give you an example. Uh, in D.C., they're doing this really cool program that um, is working extremely well to help students make more cho- better choices. And because D.C. is both a district and a state um, in, in kind of the way that it operates, it's able to get its own data. And so what they've done is they've shared with the high schools in D.C. the the graduation rates for D.C. public school students at local colleges. And they will look at the net price of those colleges and say to a student, you're going to pay $6,000 or whatever it is to go here or here. This college has a 60% graduation rate for D.C. public school students. This one, same price, has a 6% graduation rate for D.C. public school students. These are real numbers. Right now, that data is held by an organization called the National Student Clearinghouse, and it's under contract that they can only share it with specific people. So they started to put up posters around the high schools that showed this data, and they were told they were in breach of contract. So they had to put it behind a paywall that people have login now and, you know, do all these workarounds um, because we don't have access to this data. But they've seen they're able to make sure that students um, have that information, counselors, parents, but also when they're doing college visits, they don't pay for the ones at the 6% graduation rate school anymore. They don't bring kids to that campus to visit. Back to the, the accountability discussion, and I know that we're running a little bit short on time, but I'd love to touch on the issue of risk sharing, because this is an issue that we all hear a, a great deal about. It's an issue of great controversy. The basic idea being that universities that take a disproportionate amount of federal funds should have some skin in the game, particularly if their students default mm-hmm. or if their students don't succeed. What are your thoughts as to whether or not that's a viable concept and whether or not that's something that's advisable in the HEA reauthorization? I think it's definitely a viable concept. I mean, it's the current system is a great deal for colleges. They enroll students. The federal taxpayer both makes the loan and guarantees the loan. If the students drop out, the universities keep the money and the student has to pay it back. There's no financial risk to universities whatsoever in the system at all. And, and that's people behave differently when there's no risk as opposed to when there is some risk. Would I want to put all the risk on the universities? No, because we know that a lot of the places where the loan volume is highest are actually universities that themselves don't have as much money and the students don't have as much money. Um, Harvard has a 99% graduation rate. We wouldn't expect an open access community college to have the same thing. That's not reasonable. Um, but and right, you don't want to disincentivize universities from taking students that, exactly are, right. that are higher risk. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, a, a, a university or a program where five years later only 10 or 15% of students have paid any of the principal on their loan down, and again, I'm not making these numbers up. These exist in the real world. Um, something's not right. 
I mean, that's just not a system that can kind of keep going. And if it's some combination of better market choices, better regulation, and some skin in the game on the institution's part, I think that will push us in the right direction. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we just need to figure out what that combination is so it doesn't create a system that um, the risk sharing is just the cost of doing business. I think, you know, for a, a college that is able to move a lot of money around, if, say, you have to pay back, you know, X percent of what your students who default um, owe the federal government, you might just price it into your tuition. And so how do we make sure that that's not the outcome? And that's why you need kind of multiple different things that are going on here. Risk sharing itself is not sufficient because they'll just put, you know, more money on the students or stop enrolling the students that they think might be at risk of defaulting. I'm curious as to what are your thoughts on the White House's principles? You mentioned, Lene, that uh, the Secretary of Education's agenda has been admittedly quite negative on for-profit colleges, well, from the perspective of a reformer, uh, quite negative on for-profit colleges and uh, arguably detrimental to the reform movement as we consider these issues. What, um, what do you think of the White House's principles? I think there it's there's one thing about what they say and one thing about what they do. You know, oftentimes the principles or the um, vision level of what either Betsy DeVos or the Trump administration are saying are very aligned with what we're talking about. But then what they're actually doing is making it harder to kick out bad accreditors, reinstituting accreditors that have done very very bad things and are responsible <laughs> for these closures. And they have these ideas that, on principle, I don't disagree with. But the way that they're kind of carrying it out leaves a lot to be desired in terms of quality. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I agree with Lene. I mean, the, this administration was really kind of a void on a higher on a higher education policy standpoint. You know, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, was a K-12 school reformer with a strong focus on school vouchers, really no, no, no background in that. The president's background in higher education was running Trump University. Enough said on that topic. And so uh, there's been this kind of ideological component around free speech, which I think is just sort of using colleges as a venue for the culture wars. Um, some of what we heard is a good idea, you know, uh, broadly. It's, it's certainly, I think, compatible with some of the real substantive conversations that are happening on Capitol Hill right now. But ultimately, if we're going to reauthorize the Higher Education Act, it's going to be the Democrats and the Republicans making a deal in the Senate and then making a deal with the, the Democrats in the House. Um, well, let's hope that happens yes. for, for the sake of all the students who are relying on these vast amounts of funds to move forward in the world. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And uh, we'll look forward to many, many examples of progress in this area. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, an issues-based podcast produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit their website at arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you again next time on Deep Dive with Laura Arnold.